Hi, I'm Sophie Reed, standing on a street corner in my adopted hometown of Philadelphia. In many ways, I epitomise how Philly's been changing in recent years. As you can tell from the accent, I wasn't born anywhere near Francisville, where I live now. I moved to Philly four years ago from the United Kingdom with my techie husband. And we've come to love the place a whole lot. But it still drives us completely bonkers. How so, I hear you ask. Let me give you one example. Most mornings as I leave my house, I find the street blocked by a contractor's truck with a digger hard at work, obliterating the day's peace. Francisville, like much of our city, is in the midst of a construction boom. And with it comes the inevitable blocked streets bust up pavements and that unholy racket you just heard. Plenty of frayed neighbour nerves too. It seems Mayor Kenny and I have something in common. Construction disruption is one of his bugbears too. Here at 20 by 70 we figure we're not the only ones who feel these nagging pains with the way our city does or doesn't deliver services to those of us who just finished up dutifully filing our taxes. So I took a stroll around rapidly gentrifying Francisville to see what sends my neighbours berserk. What drives you totally, totally crazy about Philly? Uh, parking. Parking is really crazy around here. I would say the potholes, it's so bad, the street conditions. They're building and gentrifying a little too quickly, maybe. And um, these people coming in get a 10-year tax abatement, so nobody's paying the tax, and then the kids don't have what they need. I'm coming from California, and I would say the traffic. Coming from L.A., it's, you know, that's really saying something. Uh, but also, you know, I'm pushing two babies around, and, um, you know, sometimes it's kind of uh, difficult navigating all the sidewalks with the, uh, you know, well, let's just say they need to be repaired. A merry band of folk from Francisville, and with that... I trotted home to listen to some birdsong. Cheers, Chris. Back to you in the studio at UPenn. Hey, thanks, Sophie. And welcome to the gang here at 20 by 70, the semi-regular podcast from the Committee of 70, Philadelphia's oddly named but stubbornly persistent good government advocate. I'm Chris Satullo, and I work with 72, and since I used to hang out in public radio, one of the things they let me do here is host this podcast. I'll be your Sherpa for the next 20 minutes or so of candid reporting and brisk analysis of this fabulous, maddening city of ours. This podcast aims to show you all of Philly's quirks and quakes, its potential and pitfalls, its dreamers and inner devils. I'm joined, as always, by David Thornburg, the Committee of 70's president, CEO, and resident guitar hero. That music you'll be hearing throughout the show is by David's band, The Miners. So, uh, David, those uh, peeves and grievances that Sophie heard from people around the city, uh, did any of them sound familiar? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is kind of what people talk about when they're having a beer together or a cup of coffee around the kitchen table for dinner. What's interesting to me is this is also, I think, the way Mayor Kenny views the city. If I've heard him talk about it once, I hear him a million times uh, talk about how annoyed he gets by the way the city manages street construction or uh, new apartment construction, and they block the street and mm -hmm. traffic. And it, like, 
it clearly drives him crazy. So we've got a mayor right now who, like citizens, has kind of a street-level view of the city. Uh, so we may be at a point in time where uh, we're going to have more focus on those pain points than we might have uh, in other administrations. Right, and certainly the millennial-aged customers of the city are equally as exasperated. The line you hear all the time is some variation on, well, if Uber can get a car to wherever I am in five minutes, why can't? Oh, SEPTA, like launch a smart card in less time than it took to build the pyramids. And woe be to those who meddle with bike lanes. Oh, uh, yes, That's the definitely. third rail of uh, city politics. So, but at the Committee of 70, David, you've been working on an idea to help the city more effectively address those pain points. Yeah, the idea is called the Franklin Challenge, and it's a vision for a new kind of process that we could assemble uh, that might shorten the, the time that it takes to get something done in the mm-hmm. city. And it, it goes back to something that I was involved in it, uh, when I was uh, here at Penn called the Public Policy Challenge, which was a competition for students to pick something in Philadelphia that they wanted to improve and get about trying to figure out how you do that. One great example from the Public Policy Challenge was we had some students look at the prison system, particularly the process by which people posted bail, mm-hmm. which is, you know, when you are accused of a crime but not yet going to trial – you're held in prison unless you can post bail. Well, in Philadelphia, posting bail, it turned out, looked like it was something from the 12th century where you had to have wax seals and stamps and sign-offs from 16 different dukes right. and earls. And you had to do this during the work day, which is a little difficult, of course, if you're actually in prison. Mm-hmm. So these students say, well, you know, there is this thing called PayPal, which with a couple of keystrokes lets you send money all around the world instantaneously. So couldn't we, in fact, use a PayPal-like system for uh, folks to post bail? Which, by the way, gets them out of prison sooner, saves the city money, returns them to their families and communities and so forth and so on. And as I understand it right now, this is part of the reason why Philadelphia has pretty much the worst record of any major East Coast city in terms of people sitting in prison awaiting trial. Yeah, it's, it's appalling. And I think the students ask a good kind of an outsider question, like, why is this? And couldn't we make it better? And, you know, it's not going to change the course of Western civilization, but it could really make a difference to the lives of that prisoner and his or her family and to the city budget. So that was their proposal. They won the challenge. And last I checked, uh, it was on its way to being implemented in this city government. Okay, so the idea of the Franklin Challenge is to take that sort of simple magic, the outsider asking the good question and sort of bringing in the what about PayPal kind of idea. Uh, and apply that to different sectors of city government. Absolutely. It's kind of like a new form of the public-private partnership that our man, Ben Franklin, really created hundreds of years ago. So, yeah, you, you, you get fresh thinking, mix up the room with people from outside, people from inside, give them a problem to do. It reflects a pain point that people in the city actually have. It also strikes me that it's a little different from what we tend to do a lot, which is sort of to fly at 30,000 feet over a problem and say, how do we fix poverty? Or how yeah. do we do education with these huge, massive problems? Yeah. And so you're trying to break it down in the Franklin Challenge to things that people can actually tackle. That's right. It's as opposed to sort of the Blue Ribbon Commission that takes two years to study the prison system, comes up with 37 recommendations, really none of which actually get accomplished. Report goes on shelf. This is just in time in the manner that uh, Silicon Valley works, the tech sector works. So this is a utility that answers the question, 
How'd that happen? How'd Spruce Harbor Park happen? What can we learn from that that maybe we could apply to another challenge? Alternatively, why exactly did it take seven years, still take seven years for SEPTA to do fair cards? And what can we learn from that so that the next time around we do this better? All right. So, again, the name of the initiative is Franklin Challenge. If you want to find out more about it, I'm sure David would be happy to talk to you. Happy to buy you a beer, a cup of coffee, and we'll go on at great length. Okay. Thank you very much, David. So we've been talking a bit about how important it is to help insights and skills from the civic sector filter over into government. It's also important that some of the people who gain those insights and possess those skills make it across the divide that separates the private and civic sectors from government. Yet in this crustily one-party city, that one party, the Democrats, doesn't make it easy for fresh blood to run for office particularly true for newcomers from outside the party's hidebound and highly dynastic farm system. It's often been said that the only way most Philly Pauls leave their offices is in a coffin or handcuffs. And on the rare occasions that they leave voluntarily, they tend to want to anoint their successor before they go. Which brings us, David, to the strange case of Omar Woodard. Yeah, Omar Woodard was, for a short period of time, a candidate for a state Senate seat here in in Philadelphia. So he was running uh, to represent the people, and he hoped bring some new ideas and energy to solving some of the problems that confronted his community. It's a reminder that in the best of circumstances, elections are kind of like job interviews. We're talking to someone who might come to work for us, the citizens, to try to fix some of the things that drive us uh, crazy. Omar, very talented guy, young African-American, born and raised in North Philadelphia, uh, went to Washington for college and graduate school, uh, been very active in the uh, social entrepreneur world, seemed like a really promising new voice and force on the political scene. But as I said earlier, his race ended much sooner, I think, than he originally anticipated. So we won't see him on the ballot. No. And let's just say, uh, as far as I understand, he was talked out of the race, told that this wasn't really his time, that there were some others maybe who had paid their dues and benefited from the succession planning that seems to be uh, rife in the political world, and that was the end of that. Okay, tell you what, David, instead of just talking about Omar Woodard, why don't we do something a little different? Let's talk to him. As a matter of fact, Omar is in the studio with us today, and welcome to 20 by 70, Omar Woodard. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you for being here. Tell us about the point in time when you were considering running for public office and why you eventually chose to begin a campaign, at least, for the 3rd District Senate seat. Sure. Well, I grew up there in North Philadelphia, 16th and Lehigh and 28th and Allegheny. And when I went off to college in D.C., I came back 13 years later. Not much had changed. Change had happened in other parts of the city, in mm-hmm. Center City, in Southwest Philadelphia, and other parts. But in North Philadelphia, it was either the same or had gotten worse. At that point, I realized uh, someone needs to not just talk about this, but advocate for this in, uh, in the places of power in Harrisburg. And I also learned that uh, Senator Kitchen was considering retiring, and so there would be an open seat in my neighborhood. And it was the kind of the best opportunity to do that. All right. So you have some experience in politics. You've worked on the staff of Congressman Chaka Fatah. 
you'd worked in the policy shop for Senator Anthony Williams during his mayoral That's run correct. last That's correct. year. So you're coming out of his uh, unsuccessful mayoral campaign. So we're sort of in the middle of 2015. So you'd... That's right. It was about July 2015. And I came back to Philly and said, uh, this is what I want to do. And from July 2015 to about January of 2016, uh, I was engrossed in running for state senate, spending three to four hours per day, four days a week, sometimes five, raising money, calling my friends, calling oh, my family, <laughs> my uh, friends, family, and then uh, and then cold calling strangers. But I was able to raise or have pledged over $100,000 during that period, which I was incredibly grateful to, 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 to my supporters for. Um, and then I also spent a lot of time uh, going to community meetings. Uh, where I met, you know, and spoke directly with not just voters, but members who were invested in their community. And so police captains, block captains, child care professionals, and we're talking about union members who all have a say and a stake and care deeply about the future of their neighborhoods. And so I wanted to be a voice for them. Uh, and, and for me, it was a way to, to attending those meetings to understand what the challenges were and what the opportunities could be. Okay, so you put in the time, you've done all the right things, you've listened, you've thought, and you've raised money. Yeah. So we get to Jan- January of this year, yet somehow when people go to the polls in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, your name's not going to be on the ballot. Like, what happened? It's always good, they say in politics, to have someone who can open doors for you. And for me, those were my two former bosses, uh, State Senator Anthony Williams and and Congressman Shaka Fatah. Um, I wasn't asking for endorsements, uh, but they were supporting me in ways to identify the best way to, 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 to get to a win. And both of them ended up supporting Sharif Street my likely opponent. Okay, Street. A familiar name? Would that be any relative of the former senator from that district and the former mayor? Indeed, indeed. And, you know, and, and the Sharif. The son of the mayor and that's the right. nephew and, of the senator. And Sharif I'm a, you know, is, is, is a friend and he'll likely be the, the, the next state senator from the third senatorial district. But him running was not a deterrent to me running. In fact, it encouraged me to run. I wanted to make sure that folks knew that political scenes aren't passed down from generation to generation and that democracy requires people to step up and ensure that their voices are heard. But I was also advancing what I, what, what I think would have been um, a very robust agenda for, for North Philadelphia and for the 3rd District, and that if we're able to do the things in North Philadelphia around ending poverty, ending deep poverty in particular, it's a model for other cities across the state, in fact, across the nation. Okay. Omar, but I'm hearing the soaring music and the montage of you then running this campaign and winning as an underdog. But again, you decided not to run. So take us through that. What happened? What did people say to you? And how did you make the decision? You know, there were considerations kind of having lost the support of two major former supporters of of mine personally who went to my opponent. That was significant enough to wonder if there was a path forward. But I think the most important thing was the opportunity with the Greenlight Fund. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Greenlight Fund is a nonprofit venture capital firm that operates in Philadelphia, launched in 2012. And it invests millions of dollars uh, to this point, 3.6 million, in organizations focused on ending poverty in Philadelphia. And so the ability to invest in great organizations and in great leaders uh, to end poverty in Philadelphia versus having perhaps an even shot uh, to win a state Senate race um, and then join, uh, you know, the state Senate in early 2017. Uh, hopefully that had passed a budget uh, with fiscal constraints that would have uh, precluded my ability to bring more resources back mm-hmm. to North Philadelphia. I considered that pro or con. And at the end of the day, I have to tell you, it was a no brainer. But you were also getting a little bit of a nudge from oh, the political sure. powers that be. So. Uh, tell us a little bit about the role that Senator Kitchen did in sort of attempting to anoint who her successor would well, be. Well, you know, in July of 2015, uh, I met with Senator Kitchen and told her that I'd be running. 
and she didn't discourage me. Uh, she gave me some great advice around making sure that you meet as many people as possible and that if you're going to raise money, raise it in the right way from the right people. Uh, don't let the money you raise affect the trust people have in you. And I thought that was great feedback from her. But then I, I met up with her again. Uh, in January of 2016 with Sharif and with some others. And the conversation there was, we don't think you should run. I mean, there are other ways for you to be helpful and involved and engaged in the community. And Sharif has put in time and effort. He knows the district and the district knows him. And it's his turn. Uh, And so my pushback was significant. Uh, I, I told the story of John Street running against Cecil B. Moore in, in his late 20s, in the early 30s. I told the story of Michael Nutter running as a 29-year-old or Shaka Fatah running as a 25-year-old. All of these folks are elected and, and, and uh, you know, and doing well moving forward in their communities. How could you possibly tell me this is the wrong thing to do? You can't tell young people that their time isn't now. You can't do it, especially when we've built legacies and names and institutions as young people running against the establishment. We've done it for generations. And so to tell people who are young and generally inexperienced that they shouldn't take this shot, forget undemocratic, it's deleterious to the fabric of our communities. That's Omar Woodard, one of the leading voices in the social entrepreneurship community in Philadelphia and someone you may hear from again in the political sphere. Thank you so much, Omar. Thanks so much, Chris, I appreciate it. As you may know, our main man at Committee of 70 is CEO David Thorberg, who's brought a huge blast of energy, ideas, and impatience for progress. Before this gig, David did things like run the Fells Institute at Penn and the Economy League. So more often than not, the way we're going to end 20 by 70 is with a few words of wisdom, exhortation, or analysis from David. So here it is, your moment of City's End. Last December, my 20-something daughter, Blair, won the lottery or or, or something because next thing you know, she was able to buy us a couple of tickets to the Hamilton musical in New York as a Christmas present. At the time, I was only vaguely aware of what Hamilton mania was all about. I I knew it was the rage on Broadway that the tickets were going for as much as a few thousand dollars. Blair, are you crazy? Anyway, off we go on a blustery January day to New York to see the show. To cut to the chase, it's fabulous. Lin-Manuel Miranda, son of a New York political power couple who had emigrated from Puerto Rico, has pulled off something quite unlikely and quite spectacular. He's made an engaging, wildly energetic hip-hop musical out of the life of Alexander Hamilton, heretofore known only as the guy Aaron Burr shot in a duel, check out the drunk history version if you're unfamiliar, and for his portrait on the $10 bill. History nerd that I am, post-musical, I just had to buy not one, but two copies, Kindle for Travel, Book for Stay at Home, of Ron Chernow's Hamilton biography, the book that inspired Miranda's musical. The real-life Hamilton story, as America's come to realize, is astonishing. It makes Barack Obama's or Abraham Lincoln's story seem likely and predictable. An orphan who grew up in grinding poverty in the West Indies, Hamilton makes his way to New York to study at King's College just as the dry tinder of American Revolution bursts into flame. By age 19, he's one of the leading voices of the revolutionary cause. By 23, he's General Washington's chief of staff. After the war, he's the most passionate and persuasive advocate for the new nation, writing 52 of the 85 Federalist Papers that defended and defined our new government. At 34, the ripe old age of 34, after the war, and as the U.S. is literally creating this new nation on a blank sheet of paper, 
President Washington appoints Hamilton as the first Secretary of the Treasury. From there, Hamilton literally invents the banking system, figures out how to pay off the unsteady toddler of a country's war debts, institutes the first national taxes, and firmly establishes that the United States is a country and not a loose collection of semi-sovereign states. Hamilton was brash, brilliant, driven. Sometimes wrong, but never uncertain. As Miranda puts it, Hamilton was not throwing away his shot. Which all leads me to this question. What if Hamilton was told to stand down, to wait his turn, to get back in line because the position he sought was owed to somebody's cousin or uncle or well-connected power player? Game over before it begins. Fast forward to today's Philadelphia. Witnessed by Omar Woodard's cautionary tale, it seems more and more like our local political scenes becoming a hereditary oligarchy populated by a long line of political professionals. Sure, every once in a while we elect a fresh face, but the exception doesn't make the rule. In closing, let me just make the point that it's critically important for the future of this city that we keep the lane open to the Omar Woodards and the Alexander Hamiltons of the future, that young energy from outside, people who are not thoroughly baked and schooled in the political process, have a great deal to contribute to this city in its future. And if we don't keep that lane open, we suffer as a consequence. I'm David Thornburg from the Committee of 70. Write me at dthornburg at 70.org. Okay, that's a wrap for this, our second episode of 20 by 70, the podcast on Philly politics, government, and civic life from the Committee of 70. I'm Chris Satulo, and I've been helped in perpetrating this mischief by David Thornburg, 70's head honcho and resident optimist, and our guest, Omar Woodard of the Greenlight Fund. 20 by 70 is produced and edited by that oh-so-marvelously British expat, Sophie Reed. And it's recorded at the Annenberg Public Policy Center, to which all praise and glory be. We hope to be in your ear every month or so with 20 minutes of crisp and sometimes cheeky explication of the fascinating world of Philadelphia government and politics. You can find our past podcasts on the Committee of 70 page on SoundCloud or on our website, www.70.org. And that's 70 spelled out, not the numeral. And we hope to hear from you about what you think of the podcast and what topics you'd like us to tackle. Tweet us at Committee of 70 or email me at ccitulo at 70.org. And in the meantime, keep working at it, Philadelphia. Philadelphia.